Katiri Ewing is a poet and teacher of the creative practices of watercolor and drawing. She's author of Look Closer, Draw Better, which is a new drawing book that has just come out. She's a companion of the Guild of St. George, and we are going to talk about that a little bit later. She's an overall evangelist of the benefits of learning to see through learning to draw. I had so much fun talking with her on the show. Listen in. Hi friends, it's me, Dallas Noctegal here on Bestowing the Brush. Thanks for joining me again to talk about drawing, visual art, Charlotte Mason, and today, a bit of John Ruskin. You know, that great artist and philanthropist Mason read and quoted a lot. Well, you're in for a treat today because I have a guest on the show who has a special interest in Ruskin, and I thought I'd bring her on to have an inspiring conversation. So I have Kateri Ewing on the show with me today. Thank you for having me, Dallas. I'm, I'm a listener and a fan, and I am just honored to be here. Oh, wonderful. Thank you. So Kateri and I met on Instagram. Kateri is a watercolor artist, nature lover, and lifelong learner. So during or after the show, check out her personal work on her website, and I'll have links in the description for you all. She beautifully captures natural subjects and landscapes in her work, and her love of the natural world is apparent through her paintings. Her color palette is refined, and her compositions are thoughtful. Kateri Ewing is also self-taught in many different ways, yes. and we will discuss that today. I'm thankful that she could spend time with us today and talk out some important topics. Thank you for coming on the show, Kateri. Absolutely, I'm thrilled. So first, I've mentioned Ruskin on the show before. But I thought since you met him before I did, I was wondering if you would give us some explanation on who this John Ruskin is and what his legacy has been. Yes, as you said, John Ruskin was a Victorian era, um, really polymath, I would say, um, writer, art critic, <laughs> artist, um, mathematician, scientist, all of those things. He, he sort of did a little bit of everything. And um, he was a very thoughtful human being and later in his life was very interested in social justice. And so that was a great draw for me as well. I learned about John Ruskin mostly through the place where I live, which is East Aurora, New York. And East Aurora is the birthplace of the arts and crafts movement in the United States. And Albert Hubbard was the founder of Roycroft and Albert Hubbard was greatly inspired by John Ruskin and also William Morris, and William Morris was also inspired by John Ruskin. So I learned a lot about Ruskin um, in many different aspects through Albert Hubbard and the Roycroft, through my, my learning of him. And then I learned of Ruskin in another way. Back in 2013, um, I was in a place in my life where I, I really needed a hobby. <laughs> um, I was suddenly alone with an empty nest. I had been a stay-at-home mom and was um, sort of forced back into the workplace through divorce, finding myself in, in basic $10 an hour jobs and, and really kind of not feeling fulfilled with that. And I had just driven my daughter to El Paso, Texas, where she had a job and came back and was all alone. 
and I had also been through a lot of health issues, including cancer, and was doing better health-wise, but I really was feeling really alone for the first time in my life. And I came home and I noticed that my daughter had left all of her art supplies on the kitchen table, along with other things that were supposed to go to Goodwill. And I thought, you know what? That's a way I could spend my time. And so I started by getting up early in the morning and 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 drawing and painting. And before I ever got started, I Googled best books on learning how to draw. <laughs> and, and there was a hit that I got on Google, um, which was a blog. And the blog was a blog of a naturalist. And I honestly wish I knew where it was. I would have saved it or something because it was so wonderful. But the naturalist's pick for the best book to learn how to draw was John Ruskin, Elements of Drawing. And she included a free link to a copy that you could download and print at no cost. And so I did it. And I started to read it and I immediately felt like he was a friend and he was a hard teacher. <laughs> He's, he can be intimidating a little bit. Um, and I think part of that is just the language of that time. And, and he was very serious about what he was teaching, but I took him seriously and I really listened and I spent a lot of time with him and he became my master. I guess my, you know, my, my, my art teacher and sort of a friend, <laughs> you know, because he has that kind of voice when mm -hmm. he talks, it's, you feel like it's a conversation. Um, even though the language is much more flowery than we would use today, it still feels very familiar. And I set out to do what he asked me to do and I did it. And after some time, I mean, I just kept getting better and better and better but he wasn't so much as teaching me how to make marks on the paper, but he was teaching me the importance of learning to see. So that's mm. really, that's the biggest thing that I learned from John Ruskin. The art of seeing. The art of seeing. Yeah. The importance of not looking, but seeing and difference between what our, our brains tell us that we're seeing and what our eyes are really seeing. And that was a big epiphany moment for me when I finally understood that. And everything changed from that moment. Um, the way I saw the world changed. Interesting. That is, I think, a common thing, a, a common thread that runs through good books is that you just feel like the author is there with you, that the language was so engaging to you and that you wanted to keep going further and further and not just put it down. That's right. Yeah. He was very, he's encouraging, but he's challenging, you know, and, and um, yeah. I didn't want to disappoint him. <laughs> so yeah, you know, it's funny that um, when you read good literature, time and space sort of dissolves. Right. And, and that's very much how it felt and still does. Okay, Kateri, I wanted to talk about your affiliation with the Guild of St. George. Could you tell us a little bit about what that is? It was started in 1871 by John Ruskin. And it was sort of Ruskin's response to, um, to society at that time, which was very much becoming the industrial society that we think of during the Industrial Revolution. And so where Ruskin valued things like beauty and art and goodness and happiness and kindness and nature and all of these things, he his response was to a society that was valuing production 
and in commerce and industry. And so he, I, I would like to say he mm. kind of started the first land trust, you know, um, he was preserving land, he was preserving places of beauty, so they wouldn't be destroyed by industry. Um, he was creating art museums for people whom he thought never would have access to beauty otherwise. In fact, the museum where my works are displayed um, is Museum Sheffield, and it is he built that right across the street from an iron factory and where iron workers were. And so, so the people working there could go on their lunch break or their break over to see art and, and have beauty in their day because otherwise he felt there was such danger in only seeing refineries and, and factories, you know, and never having beauty. So it was really important to him. And that's why he founded the guild. So he could gather a bunch of people that, that were like-minded and could continue doing the work that he felt was important. And so the, the guild still exists today. And um, to be a member, I mean, you, you write an essay, I'm, you're basically voted into the guild. And I believe there are 200 something members. Um, there's a guild role and you go all the way back to the beginning. And the first signature is John Ruskins. So it's pretty, it's pretty fascinating. And they do a lot of, a lot of good work. Um, and this year, is Ruskin's bicentennial, bicentennial of his birth. And there are many, many happenings all over the world in celebration of Ruskin's 200th birthday. And in fact, in December, I'm traveling to Los Angeles to the Huntington Library. Actually, I guess it's in Pasadena to be a speaker at a Ruskin conference there. What topic um, specifically will you be? I'm going to be talking about Ruskin and learning to see. Well, it's right up your alley. That. That sounds great. Yes. <laughs> and then one of his works, you've talked about the nature of Gothic. Mm -hmm. So there, um, the nature of Gothic is, is an essay um, that I recommend that every person reads. And the, the gist of it really, it encompasses many things, but the gist of what I took away from it, for instance, if you look, if you go into any city now or any suburb <laughs> anywhere in this country and you look at architecture of basic buildings that have been constructed since, you know, in the past 150 years, they're very, um, they're, well, oh. they're ugly. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, the architecture is, is, I mean, there are always exceptions, but in general, basic buildings that are just meant for everyday businesses and things, there just isn't much beauty in them. And, and Ruskin was fighting against that, you know, because it was starting to happen already in his time. And so this essay is really about slow beauty and handmade beauty and individuality and giving the craftsman the individual freedom to create instead of just being cookie cutter, mm -hmm. right? And, and it's, just, it's a, just a really beautiful essay about the nature of, of individual craftsmanship and beauty. The importance of being surrounded by beauty. Yeah. I mean, it affects us, right? Mm -hmm. So Absolutely. I'm noticing a trend that that's sort of circling back around now with the whole maker movement and local um, emphasis in shops that kind of pop up in downtown areas and people really are sort of embracing or re-embracing that idea of craftsmanship. I really think so. I mean, in, in general, you know, you, you see a trend among thoughtful people that this is, that these things are happening for sure. Farmers markets. I mean, all of those things. 
um, craft beer, <laughs> craft coffee, you know, it's all, um, mm-hmm. it, it touches just about everything. I mean, in my industry, it's now handmade paint and handmade paper and handmade brushes. It's a beautiful thing, you know, pottery. Architecture, I'm not so sure. <laughs> yeah. But, um, yeah, but I mean, but there's still, there's wonderful architecture now, but in, I, I just mean in general at that time, industrial buildings and things were becoming very industrial, mm-hmm. you know, and he was, he was rebelling against that, but yeah, I think so. I mean, I think, I think we have to do our best to keep it going in that direction too and support the people who are doing that work. For sure. Yeah. And then just feed our minds with good thoughts like these, like read some John Ruskin, right? Yes. (laughs) Oh, yeah. So the, the, the nature of Gothic is wonderful. And, and there's another, I think it's called unto this last, Mm-hmm. And that's really social justice commentary. And I think it's just as pertinent today as it was when he wrote it. You have, it seems like you have a great Patreon thing going on. Can you talk to me a little bit about that? Yeah. So I I started only about two years after I started drawing and painting. I was asked by um, Craftsy at that time, which is an online learning platform, um, to created classes for them. And I have four classes with Craftsy now, and they just turned into a company called Blueprint, which is owned by NBC NBC Universal. And then um, I I was also picked up by the great courses. I have watercolor classes on the great courses. And through that, I, I got sort of a worldwide studentship, you know, and I think the last count I had, like over 75,000 students have gone through my classes in one way or another. It's a lot of people. And so I thought to keep being engaged with them, I would start a YouTube channel. And I did, and I did it for about eight months before I realized that it was just taking a tremendous amount of time. And I had a lot of views and a lot of, you know, people that you would think you would get some kind of monetary... (laughs) Mm. But after like a year's time, I've still only earned like $21. Oh, wow. It's a lot of work to to not earn anything from, you know, what what I'm trying to. Yeah. And so um, in order to grow that, in order to keep giving what I know to people um, and what I'm learning to people, I started a Patreon. And, And Patreon is basically a way for people to support your work. You know, and um, for $5 a month, people join. And I've had people that have been there since day one, and it just keeps slowly growing. And I give three videos a week of, of instruction, and I answer questions every single day. We have a beautiful, thriving community there of people who have all different desires for their art practice. Some want to learn how to draw like Ruskin, and some want to paint but they don't want to learn how (laughs) so Mm. it's just you know it's a very it's a wide variety of people everybody fits in and we have a wonderful time there's a lot of sharing and it's just um it's just a beautiful place to be so yeah it's a lot of fun and i i offer everything from graphite drawing lessons to pen and ink to watercolor and then also an intuitive painting this sounds fantastic this sounds like it's a, wonderful. You know, the best of so many worlds. You've got the camaraderie of it and you've got that built-in support network. And then it sounds like you're really available for questions 
are these videos, are they live sessions or have you pre-recorded it and given it out? I pre-record them. I Every now and then I'll do a live video, Instagram live, and sometimes I'll put them on, on YouTube and then share them on my Patreon. But um, mostly they're pre-recorded and then I upload them three times a week. And then um, people ask questions. They post their own work for commentary. Um, they can private message me if they're not comfortable, you know, sharing their work. So it, it's just, a, it's, it's the best thing that I do, to be honest with you. It is, it's just really, I, I look forward to it every day. I get so excited to see other people excited about their creative practice and supporting each other and um, just all of a sudden realizing that they can do something that they've always wanted to do. And it, it's, it's a wonderful thing. Wow. That is so great. It's a good way to just be a part of something bigger than yourself. It sounds like a place where multiple different types of people are welcome and you're welcome really at any skill level and experience level. I think that you do a wonderful job of doing that and really making people feel welcome and that whatever they are able to do is okay. Absolutely. And it, you know, people truly have all different skill levels there, but everybody's a beginner at something and and we all have something to learn from one another. I, you know, a lot of the intuitive work, it's totally process-based work. And the people who are really technical artists, you know, they're really into the, the technical work, mm-hmm. have found that the intuitive and more meditative work is exactly what they need mm. um, to, to help them get better at what they're doing. And so it all works. It all works together. And my, you know, my only my only rule is that you know, is that we don't judge ourselves harshly and that we remember that we're learning and that my rule is that you have to do something three times before you can complain. <laughs> so <laughs> after you do it three times, you can say, okay, that I'm not doing this well, but if, oh. if you haven't done it three times yet, then don't, don't you dare. <laughs> um, because, you know, the first time we do something, we're learning. The second time we're doing something, we're practicing it. And the third time we can relax a little bit and really kind of do what we've started to understand. And even sometimes Mm. it takes more than three times. It depends on what we're doing, but that's the general rule. You know, we can't expect perfection the first time. It's no different than a musician learning to play the piano. You know, they, they have to play their scales every day and artists have the same. We have to practice. Absolutely. You said it so well there. Well, let's then talk about how, so you were inspired by Ruskin. You really Mm -hmm. got to know painting and drawing in that way. And now you're sort of embarking on your own techniques. Let's talk a little bit about what, how you've sort of honed in on your particular type of technique around drawing. Yeah. So I, because I'm self-taught, you know, I, I gleaned what I know from all different sources and, and just from quite frankly, doing things over and over again. And, and one of the things that I really loved painting and drawing when I was first beginning, um, was birds. And I painted the same birds over and over again. I painted the birds that I see in my backyard. So after you draw and paint a chickadee a hundred times, <laughs> you can, you can draw and paint a chickadee with your eyes closed. And so I sort of found my own way to go about it and it has its own look. And I, I think for me, the most important 
thing that I try to emphasize with my students is that when we're talking about art, we're not talking about scientific illustration. That's not what I'm teaching anyway. That's a whole different skill. But what we're doing is we're creating, we're documenting something that we love. So we're, we are looking at nature, holding something beautiful in our hand, and we're portraying it on paper from our eyes, the way we see it and the way we experience it. And so I, you know, I'm not looking for photographic representation. I'm looking for presence and poetry and the way I perceive it or another person perceives it. I want to see something through your eyes and I want you to see something through my eyes. And I also work from the belief that art is praise. It doesn't have to be anyone else's belief, but that's why I do it. Um, Ruskin has a quote, um, let your art be the praise of something that you love. It may be as simple as a stone or a shell. And that's, that's where I operate from. That's really it in a nutshell. It's praise. And so when I am drawing, I'm learning to see something so clearly and so focused on the thing that I'm drawing or painting, the most ordinary walnut shell becomes extraordinary. Mm. You know, mm-hmm. and that's what I'm going for every time. And I, because of that, I don't paint backgrounds. I I just want the object to shine. I very rarely paint shadows on the paper. Um, Sometimes I do. It just depends. If it needs to be grounded, I will. But if you look at Ruskin's paintings like that, his botanical work and his paintings of seashells, and there's no background. It's just a seashell on a piece of paper. And when you see that in person, I saw one last March, actually a year ago right now for the first time. And it was so exquisite. It took me, it took my breath. I mean, it took me to my knees, basically. It is so beautiful. Wow. It's just a seashell. <laughs> but it's, he, he, he saw that seashell. Yeah. So th- that, that's my, my way of, of doing things. I, I want my students, I don't want them to copy me. I don't want them to copy a photograph. I want them to look at a photograph or look at an object or look at whatever their subject is. And I want them to be confident with their tools so they can depict what they see and feel on their paper. Sounds like really what we're trying to do in drawing. But the the other danger is, is you don't want it to be generic. The seashell that you're holding is an individual. There's no other seashell like it in the whole world ever. And so you are painting that seashell. And so you want to see what makes that seashell so beautiful and unique right? Mm-hmm. And if we just paint, learn how to paint a generic seashell, I mean, we can all do that, you know, and, and there are formulas that you could do that, but that's not what we're going for. We're, we, we want to look at that leaf or that twig or that ladybug and paint the ladybug that we see that's right in front of us. I agree with you. It's a very unique experience and you're also considering the light your entire environment though it may not be like you said you're you you are usually isolating your subject but I mean everything affects what you're drawing absolutely yeah and Ruskin's very clear about that you know when he the first thing he has you do is to draw a rock and he said if you can draw a rock you can draw anything (laughs) and he's right and that's the very first thing I have my students do is draw a rock but he talks very specifically about being where natural light is falling on your table, on your paper, and hitting your rock from the same side each time you, you draw it. 
So he's very specific about, about how to light things and the importance of that quality of light. Yeah, that is one thing I've noticed as well. And I didn't read the elements of drawing, but I read the laws of Faisalé, mm-hmm. which, you know, I think it's one of his aphorisms in the middle of the book is, you know, it's a terrible waste of candles to do a painting by them. Always do your work in the daylight. Yes. And man, I I could not agree more with him there. It just matters. Your colors are truer. Your it, it affects the entire thing, and it's a natural light source that there's no harsh shadows. And there's usually only one shadow. So if you get into an artificial situation, sometimes you have three or four shadows, you know? Yeah. Well, I do have a question about your new book coming out. Look closer, draw better. Actually, yesterday was its publication day. So it is now, my my, my daughter went to Barnes & Noble today and bought it. <laughs> Congratulations. So, yeah, it's everywhere now. That's exciting. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, I've seen the cover. So that's all I'm going by. It, it intrigues me. And I kind of want to know what you are meaning when you say look closer. So I want people to look at the individual subject that they're seeing. And I want them to learn how to see things with their eyes and not their brains. And we can only do that if we're really, if we're really seeing something. For instance... Um, one of the things I usually do with my students is I have them draw the cup that they drink their, their tea from or their coffee from in the morning um, from memory. And I, I have them imagine that it's sitting on their desk and they just draw a simple line drawing of this cup or mug on a table. And nine people out of 10, sometimes all 10 people, will draw a cup with a flat line at the bottom sitting on the table because our brains know that the table is flat and our brains know that the cup is flat. Basically, our brains override what our eyes would see and we draw a straight line. When in actuality, if you look at a mug sitting on the table, the bottom line is curved, okay? And as soon as people see that, they say, oh, you're right, it's not flat (laughs) because my eyes are overriding my brain right now (laughs) and they're telling me, you know, (laughs) they're looking exactly at what's there instead of what our brain is telling us is there. And that is, it makes all the difference in the world. And so I want people to start looking at things with their eyes instead of their brains. And I know that sounds weird because our brains are controlling our eyes, but it really, it really makes sense when you start doing it. Our brains try to override what we're seeing all the time. They're really smart. And we have to learn to train ourselves to see things in shape and in value. And then the transition between the two. And that's that's what I'm trying to teach people. And also how to mark make, to, to use your tools so you can put down the intuitive mark making techniques that, that you see when you're looking at your subject. Because texture is really important too. And so our drawings look very natural and they don't look like cross-hatching all the way across. Yeah. Cross-hatching is a technique that we use, but it shouldn't be only that. You know, it can be, but then it looks very stylized and it looks like a cross-hatch drawing. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. If we use our intuitive mark making, so we're looking at, at the walnut or the pear or whatever, and we're, we're mimicking exactly what our eyes see with our pencil, we can get astounding results. And Ruskin talked about this concept too. You know, I think he's borderline making fun of that type of teaching that 
would have you stylize a shadow in that way because it's just not it's not what you're seeing it's just what you think you want to see there that's exactly right and then maybe if the listeners don't know cross-hatching is really when you're taking your tool and you're doing lines one way and then lines the opposite other way to kind of Mm -hmm. create a nice texture but it's it's not really representative of the object in front of you that's right it can represent shadow and form very well. And, and there are ways, let's say you're drawing a pair and you can draw contoured cross-hatching and you can really make something look three-dimensional, but it looks like a drawing. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. There's nothing wrong with that. It's beautiful. I've seen some exquisitely tender drawings made with cross-hatching. Look at Albrecht Durer. Yeah. Right. I mean, so, I mean, there's nothing wrong with it, but, but you can also take it a little bit further and really use your intuition under your pencil or your brush and create marks that really mimic nature, you know, because nature isn't made of cross hatching. Mm -hmm. And so it, it, it totally, it, it just takes it to a different place. Andrew Wyeth did that. Andrew Wyeth's drawings are completely intuitively made. That you know, you will never see the same mark twice. Nowhere near. <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm nowhere near there. But but that's what I'm aiming for. Well, yeah. I mean, you only started teaching yourself how to draw eight years ago. Is that no? Correct? It's um, two th- five years ago. Oh, five years ago. Yeah. Wow. Truly amazing. That is amazing. It to is me. amazing. No, it, it is amazing. And I, I I thank my lucky stars every day that I. That I said yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, and like you said, it's not necessarily the easy thing to do to be self-taught. You are reading this wonderful book, and at times you kind of want to have an argument with the man that teach you the proper way. And mm-hmm. at least that's how I have felt with reading his works. But I think it has just taken some failing and then understanding, okay, I think I'm understanding what he's saying here. I should just trust him on this. and kind of amazing what you what you think you know and you don't know <laughs> mm-hmm. well and the other thing is is he's just he's one voice and there are so many ways to be right you know I mean there's so many ways to be wrong and and there are as many approaches to drawing and painting as there are people doing it and and we can learn from everyone and from you know I learn from watching my students and how they approach something and and they learn from me so it's such an organic act that, you know, it, it's very, really hard to find one formula that works all the time. But John Ruskin was a great observer and he was an amazing artist and an amazing thinker. And he gave us, a, he gave us many, many tools for our toolbox. Mm-hmm. And, and you'll find many tools when you go look at Andrew Wyeth's drawings, you'll find many tools, you know, so Leonardo da Vinci gave us many tools, you know, and he gave John mm-hmm. Ruskin tools. So it, it gets passed on and it's all part of the big collective body of creative knowledge. So I, I mm-hmm. think there's so many ways to be right. Well, yeah. And I think when you think about science too, how it builds on the knowledge that we've gained from the past, I don't, I think art is the same way you mm-hmm you know, we're just collectively learning these things. And honestly, we're standing on the shoulders of giants. And so when you have all these amazing people of history that have found these foundational principles, especially when they can write about them so well and truly inspire people today, it's Mm -hmm. amazing. 
No, I agree. Well, in this podcast, I love to talk about Charlotte Mason, and this is the philosophy of education that we use. And here's what Mason says in her first volume, Home Education. This is what we wish to do for children in teaching them to draw, to cause the eye to rest, not unconsciously, but consciously on some object of beauty, which will leave in their minds an image of delight for all their lives to come. Children of six and seven draw budding twigs of oak and ash, beech and larch, with such tender fidelity to color, tone, and gesture that the crude little drawings are in themselves things of beauty. And then she states that children have art in them. Yeah. I like Charlotte Mason. <laughs> I, I, you know, everything that I've heard you talk about, I, I just think I wish I would have known about Charlotte Mason when I was raising my own children. But now I have my granddaughter, so mm. I, can, I can introduce it that way. But, you know, I love, I love what she says there. And I have this, you know, and I don't know if it's politically correct or not, but I have this idea that we are teaching children art all wrong. You know how when your kids, I don't know if your kids were ever in public school, but when, when they would come home at like Thanksgiving and every kid would take their hand and draw a turkey, mm, yeah. you know what I'm talking about, mm-hmm. and cut it out with construction paper and all of that. And it's fun and there's nothing wrong with that. And and our teachers are amazing and they do so much with kids. But I, I, have, I have this feeling that instead of doing things like that, that at the beginning of the year, each child gets their own nature sketchbook and they get their own pencil and their own brush and their own pot of sepia watercolor. And they're given a leaf. A simple, they go on a nature walk, they bring back a leaf. They bring back a pine cone. They bring back an acorn, an inchworm, you know, what, whatever it is. And they're left to observe it closely and to draw what they see. And they draw in the same book every single day. And they're, they're given sort of help and instruction, but not, nothing too much. I mean, just how to hold your pencil and how to draw a fluid line and, and all of those things. And then their drawings might not look anything like what they're, what they're trying to draw at first, but there will be truth in them. No matter what ends up on their paper, there will be truth in them. Because if they're directly looking at something and trying to mark down what they see, there will be truth. And then at the end of the year, after they've done this every day or every week, however often they have lessons, they can look back and see, you know, their progression. So maybe they draw that same leaf five days in a row, you know, and they, and they see the progression of it. And so by doing this, we're teaching children exactly what you just read to me. You know, exactly Mm -hmm. what you just read to me. Instead of these throwaway things, you know, that they're really not learning anything about the real world. I mean, a a turkey doesn't look like our hands. Right. And so I I just, that's my feeling. I I feel like, especially today, because I think so many children are lacking um, any kind of connection with the natural world. And I think it would maintain that sense of wonder in the, in the world around them instead of what they see on a screen or on TV or, you know, with toys. Mm-hmm. I just think it's the, sen- the kind of sense of wonder, I think, that makes people good humans. You're speaking my language there. I think it's that 
shaping of the beauty sense right off Mm -hmm. the bat and giving them, look, here's the objective thing of beauty. And even like you said, maybe they're drawing the same leaf five days in a row. The drawing is not going to look the same those five days in a row. There's going to be some noticeable new observations and little areas you didn't see before or totally new light or a new position. It, it could revolutionize the way children are taught the, you know, are, are taught art. And I, I, I don't know if it exists anywhere. I mean, yeah. Well, and I think this is the concept of the nature notebook in a Charlotte Mason education. It's a really meant to be a self-led thing, right? You know, it's sort of a diary, but there's some sketching in it. There's some note taking in it. I mean, it encompasses so much. It's science, it's geography, it's math, it's color science, it's mm-hmm. poetry, as you've said, and have described art before. I just think you're learning so much when you embark on that journey that, like like you said, that might be one of the most missing parts of a modern education these days. Yeah, it sure seems like it to me. I mean, I, you know, it sure seems like it to me. And, and, and maybe it'll never happen. And in a public school setting, but, but maybe more parents can do it, <laughs> you know, and, and just to, just to have a child look at something for that long in concentration. I mean, that's good training too, you know, just to, to have the patience to sit with the mm-hmm. leaf for that long, <laughs> you know, and really, and to really look at something yeah. for that long. And I know, I know that you begin with brush drawing and, and that, that's hard, you know, that that's hard. It, yeah. it is. It's, it's a hard thing to do. If a child could begin that way, I can't even, I mean, the, the skill, the hand skill that they would acquire is amazing. The pencil would be easy. Yeah. I've just seen that with my own kids. I didn't, I don't think I started my oldest son on like a real paintbrush until maybe year five, mm-hmm. he's five years old. And my daughter who turned three, not too long ago has really kind of used a brush since she was born. Mm-hmm. If she could hold something in her hand and her control is amazing. Yeah. It shocks me. Yeah. Maybe we just need to not be afraid of it. And I do hear a lot of moms or caretakers or educators just maybe eschew it because it's so messy or they're afraid of the mess or the hassle. Mm-hmm. But I think if we could just kind of shift how we think about it and it's kind of a special thing too. You don't get to hold a, a paintbrush all the time. So no, and you can even buy pens, you know, I mean, J- J- Japanese and Chinese, their pens are brushes. <laughs> um, they, they're brushes. They're, they're cartridge pens with brushes on the end, you know, and some of them are disposable. I mean, just like our Bic pens and they learn to, to write using a brush, you know, that's the easiest yeah. way to make a Japanese or Chinese character. It's quite, it's quite a skill. You know, when, when you give someone a brush, if, if you gave me a brush 10 years ago and you asked me to write my name, it would have been hard. (laughs) And so I think that's why, I think that's why a lot of people give up on it because it is hard and you don't get good results overnight. Mm. Just like playing the piano or anything else, you have to show up every day and practice. And, but, but it does come. And then once it's there, it's there and you have this confidence, you know, and you, you, you know how to wield it. Mm-hmm. It's just, I think people get discouraged too quickly. Sure. Yeah. Maybe so. Well, try everything three times. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> At least. I love that. Can I borrow that from you? Sure. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> you know, I mentioned earlier that Kateri writes poetry. And so I asked her if she would prepare something for us, or at least be willing to read one of her poems for us. And I think she has something prepared. Is that right? I do. All right. We would love to hear. Okay. So this poem is called Lichen, and it's from um, a little collection I had called Unweaving the Nest. So Lichen. This morning, I parted birch white silk curtains, looked to the woods at the mosses, maidenhair ferns, rough bark of maple, that reassuring sky. Why did I think of the gray-haired man who sits alone at the diner, hands as big as dinner plates that fumble through the daily news, raise the sturdy white mug of coffee to his lips, trembling like a once nervous groom slipping the ring on his bride's slender finger? Or the young mother who lives only miles from my door, braving her last mornings, not knowing if each detail of this ordinary day should be met with gratitude or goodbye. Later, I walked with a man whom I love through tall grasses and damp wooded paths. We rested on a rock near the pond. Two Canada geese serpentined in the water thick with duckweed leaving trails like tire tracks in virgin snow. I traced my fingers lightly, lightly through the hair on his forearm while he spoke and I listened for the unspoken. It is more than enough and yet never enough. There is endless beauty in this world. Just look at the hundreds of thin petals on the bull thistle, how the minuscule gallfly climbs and descends them as if mountaineering a steep wall of magenta rock, or how each hull on the seed head of grass glows in the early sunlight, and the stately field mullen burn like vigil candles until dusk blows them out. My hand leaves him to touch the silver moss blossoming at the edge of a stone, I have read it grows one millimeter a year, that slow, patient lichen on the cool stone, seeming to thrive solely on time and air. I like the, man, I just really love the narrative of just carried through. Yeah, it, it, this poem was inspired by a trip that I took to have breakfast. When I used to go to the same diner all the time in the morning, and I would do my writing work and, and eat breakfast. And there was this man who was always there by himself every day. And one day I was coming in and he was coming out and he just looked, he just, I, I don't know, I, I'm intuitive in a way. And I had this sense about him when I saw him and I, I just looked at him and I said, can I hug you? <laughs> and he was this big older man. And he said, sure, you know, <laughs> and so I mm. hugged him really hard and he hugged me really hard. And he said, you know, he said, today was the anniversary of my wife's death. And so you, you never know. Yeah, so it just made me think of this poem and and, and kind of going through my day. And there was also a, a woman that lived in our village who was who had cancer and she was dying and she had tiny children. Mm. And it just it just made me think about my gratitude and and all of the beautiful things that I'm surrounded with, but also also to be mindful of the sadness, you know. So, anyways, well, probably linked to that seeing aspect when you're causing yourself to slow down to see 
things in front of your eyes that maybe you would see things that you don't expect in your daily life. Yep. Yeah, for sure. And, and poetry is seeing too. No, it's, it's definitely, it's definitely seeing um, more than, than, than what our brains, you know, there's that wonderful passage from Ruskin. I think we talked about it another time where he takes a walk. (laughs) He talks about a person that, that, that is seeing that's an artist and, and someone who is a sketcher and the walk that they take is completely different from a person who's never sketched or drawn, you know, and, and the things that we notice when, when we're, when we have our eyes open, poetry is the same. Thank you again, Kateri, for coming on the show. I have really enjoyed talking with you and so glad that we connected over Instagram. And I just want to let you know you're welcome back anytime you want to come. Thank you so much, Dallas. I had a great time. It's just fun to talk about these things. And not only is it fun, but I think it's really important to do it and and to engage people in in the art of, of seeing and learning how to draw. And I believe that everyone should be doing it. So hopefully between you and I, we can get a bunch more people. (laughs) For sure. Let's do it. Absolutely. (laughs) All right. Well, thank you. And we'll chat with you later. You can find Kateri's courses on Blueprint, Craftsy, and Patreon. She has a great YouTube channel too that has really helped me a lot. And I can't wait to read her new book, Look Closer, draw better. Find all of those links in my show notes. You can follow her on Instagram at Kateri Ewing and her personal art page is at Kateri Ewing Art. Here's a note from my virtual Fesole participants. I'm still here. Hashtag Fesole Brandstock to let me and the community see, but please do email me your best one for comments and feature on my page. Remember that the Fessole Club is currently taking submissions until one week from today. That will be April 24th, 6 p.m. Central Time is the cutoff. I can't wait to see. My email address is bestowingthebrush at gmail.com. Also, if you don't follow me on Instagram, get over there and follow me at bestowingthebrush. I am really looking forward to summer. What are your drawing and sketching goals? Do you have any? I would really like to try drawing some ballet dancers at one of our conservatory's rehearsals upcoming here. And of course, tons of drawing plant life in the field is always on my list. Okay, see you later, folks. Happy drawing, happy painting, happy living. Bye-bye.